Let's be honest, the world is a mess. And under everything that is happening, there's trauma. When we think of trauma, we think primarily of the psychological. We think of the conscious and subconscious act of reliving trauma, whether through triggers or reflections on events. You may be familiar with the diagnosis post-traumatic stress disorder, which follows survivors of a particular trauma. But we don't tend to think about the origins of trauma itself, or how it can spread throughout a community. The events from which trauma emerges are, after all, social, whether it's war, a breakdown of institutions, or, yes, even family dynamics. So yes, sitting with your family at Thanksgiving and listening to Uncle Bob rant about kids these days and their TikToks while others nod in agreement can be dramatic. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Today we're going to talk about trauma in its many different forms, and the steps we can take to mitigate its effects as a society. Today, sociology is going to ruin trauma. First, what is trauma? To understand trauma, you have to think of events, particularly events that have the ability to completely change your sense of self, your view of the world, and even how you see your future. It can be acute trauma, which stems from a single event, like a disaster, or it could be chronic trauma that reoccurs, like someone who undergoes abuse or torture. Trauma is often discussed within the domain of psychology because, after all, it focuses on individual experience and resulting mental health issues. The psychoanalytic view looks at not just the event, but the subconscious response. In a very simplistic interpretation of Freud's argument, people repress traumatic events because they don't want to be re-traumatized. But this is a sociology podcast, so let's look at it from a sociological perspective. When you dig deeper into the mechanisms that create trauma, you'll find institutions at work. As sociologist Jeffrey C. Alexander wrote, Trauma is not something naturally existing. It is something constructed by society. Well, yes and no, but we'll get more into that later. The important part is that there are elements of trauma that are socially constructed. Think about the examples I gave earlier. If you listened to the last episode about the movie Don't Look Up, I talked with sociologist Nick Janos quite a bit about socially constructed components of disasters. An obvious example is the devastation in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. The Mississippi River Gulf Outlet Canal, or Mr. Go, is an artificial channel that was built in the 1950s to create a shorter route from the Gulf of Mexico to the city's port. A 2009 report found that the channel was directly responsible for some of the worst flooding in the city during Katrina. This situation was directly created by economic interests in the city. An example of chronic trauma comes from sociologist Matthew Desmond's book Evicted. Desmond talks about a nuisance property ordinance in Milwaukee that allows police departments to penalize landlords for the behavior of tenants. What this means is that if a tenant has made what the department considers an excessive number of calls, that'd be three or more calls to 911 within a 30-day period, landlords could face fines, their license could be revoked, they could lose their property, or they could be sent to jail. But this had an unintended effect. Landlords started to display zero tolerance for 911 calls and would evict tenants who caused too much quote-unquote trouble. That meant residents who were in serious danger, like a person being abused by a spouse or partner, 
were afraid to call 911 because too many calls could lead to an eviction. In this instance, an institution, law enforcement, created a situation in which chronic trauma could thrive. It's also worth reminding that according to a 2016 CDC report on causes of violent deaths, half of women murdered who were familiar with their killer were killed by a current or former intimate partner. This is only the case in 1 in 13 men who are killed. To recap, social structures play a role in trauma, whether it's acute or chronic. Not all individual trauma is socially constructed, though. I could be attacked by a shark while swimming in the ocean and be so traumatized that I never want to go swimming again. But what if the media starts reporting on shark attacks as if they're a daily occurrence and nobody wants to go to the beach? This brings me to the difference between individual and collective trauma. Let's define collective trauma. Sociologist Kai Erickson actually describes both individual and collective trauma perfectly in Everything in Its Path, which is Erickson's study of the aftermath of the 1972 Buffalo Creek flood in West Virginia. I obviously couldn't get Erickson on the podcast, so here's a robot. By individual trauma, I mean a blow to the psyche that breaks through one's defenses, so suddenly, and with such brute force that one cannot react to it effectively. By collective trauma on the other hand, I mean a blow to the basic tissues of social life that damages the bonds attaching people together and impairs the prevailing sense of communality. Hey, thanks sociology bot. Hey, thanks dude. I was thinking I can have a bigger role on the podcast, like reading the weather report or interviewing guests. I'm fluent in over 6 million forms of communication and, and I have a degree quick. in Fluent in over 6 million forms of communication, he can't even remember the host's name. So what does collective trauma look like? Burnout. Isolation. Hopelessness. Sound familiar? It can be easy to grasp the mechanism behind individual trauma, but what causes collective trauma? Back to Alexander. He believes collective trauma emerges when social crises become cultural crises. For that to happen, people have to believe their collective identity, their homes, or their futures are in jeopardy. This is communicated through what Max Faber called carrier groups. They could be elites, they could be marginalized people, they could be a generation, they could be an institution, they could be a nation. Confused? Okay. Think of a school board meeting. A man walks up to the microphone and says, As a parent, I speak to other parents, there's a few things that we don't want. I'm biracial, I'm bilingual, I'm multicultural. The fact is, in America, in North Carolina, I can do anything I want, and I teach that to my children. And the person who tells my little pecan-colored kids that they're somehow oppressed based on the color of their skin would be absolutely wrong and absolutely at war with me. And I think that's the same for every parent. What the mask showed us is that the parents, the most powerful group of people in our country, that they're taking back the wheel. Now, obviously, we had to take the wheel back for the mask, but we're taking the wheel back from Washington all the way to Raleigh and into our local school board. Because CRT, all of that, the parents don't want it. It's a big fat lie. There's not one, if, there, if you believe in CRT, I want to tell you you're a liar. Because that means you look at your black neighbor and say that they're oppressed, and you look at your white neighbor and say that they're evil, regardless of the experience that you've had with them. And we're not going to do that. The parents in the United States of America, right here in North Carolina and Cabarrus County, we know that's not true because we believe the lives we live. That man speaking is part of, or in some cases is, the carrier group. The carrier group has to make a persuasive argument in order to project trauma upon the audience. 
And according to Alexander, the narrative needs four things. One, the nature of pain, or what happened to the group. Two, the nature of the victim, or which groups were affected. Three, relation of the victim to the wider audience. Can we see something like this happening to us? And four, attribution of responsibility, or who is the antagonist? In the example I just gave, you have one, the nature of pain, children being taught what parents believe to be false. Two, the nature of the victim, children and parents who are opposed to critical race theory. Three, relation of the victim to the wider audience. The speaker makes an appeal to parents across the United States. And four, attribution of responsibility. The man specifically attacks the government, local school boards, as well as anyone who believes in critical race theory. It's a textbook speech intended to incite moral panic amongst parents, to initiate trauma in parents by making them think that their children are being subjected to some sort of liberal agenda. Is it true? Of course not. Anyone who knows anything about critical race theory knows that it's not being taught in K-12. But that's a whole other episode. The man's speech is a move to incite people to take political action and vote for a certain party. It's no surprise that the man who gave the speech, Brian Echevarria, is running for political office. So, yes, these trauma claims can be misleading, even imaginary, but they can be used for good and bad. Wait, you might say, how can projecting trauma upon anyone be used for good? Well, hear me out. Collective trauma occurs when group identity is disrupted, but that identity is eventually reconstructed. When you remove a traumatic element or give people enough distance from a traumatic event, healing occurs. Back to sociologist Jeffrey C. Alexander, he notes, Lessons from the trauma become objectified. We create monuments, like the September 11th Memorial in Manhattan. We create museums, like the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. We even hold on to historical artifacts, like articles of clothing from people we've lost, a piece of wood from the home you lost in a fire. Other than these sacred objects and spaces, the world goes back to the way it was before. The trauma fades. Alexander calls this the triumph of the mundane. If you've ever lost a loved one, you might recognize this as the final stage of grief. Acceptance. This sounds like a good thing, but it isn't always good. Trauma has the potential to mobilize. On August 17th, 2021, a wildfire swept through the town of Grizzly Flats, California. This fire, the Kaldor Fire, would continue eastward towards South Lake Tahoe, burning over 200,000 acres. Grizzly Flats was essentially leveled, with only about one-third of the town left standing. When a wildfire or a flood or a tornado or an earthquake hits, multiple things occur. Media coverage ramps up, there's an outpouring of support through aid organizations, politicians make promises to rebuild. And then, the rest of us move on. The greater collective trauma from the disaster dissipates. We've seen this with the Kaldor fire. Once another disaster or significant news event occurs, the attention shifts to that. Unless the trauma is chronic, like in a war, or objectified, like in the case of September 11th, it's rare that the wider public's attention shifts back to a previous disaster. If you remember, the trauma narrative needs four things, and one of them is, can we see something like this happening to ourselves? For a brief moment, we can. But there are a couple theories on why that changes. One, collectively, we crave normalcy. 
We've seen this with the pandemic and the constant push towards returning back to quote-unquote normal. I recommend listening to the episode on normalcy to understand why that can mean different things to different people. Two, on the individual level and for people who don't suffer from anxiety and depression, our brain protects us from catastrophizing. Think of it this way. If you walked out the door every morning worrying about, one, getting into a car accident, two, getting hit by a car while crossing the street, three, being robbed at gunpoint, and on and on and on and on, you'd never leave the house. We're not supposed to constantly worry about our own mortality because that would be paralyzing. So while we might see a tragedy and think, that could be me and I should do something to help, we eventually dismiss that, that could be me part. Again, people who suffer from anxiety and depression don't move on so easily. If it doesn't already exist, maybe someone should research if people suffering from anxiety and depression make for better carrier groups. Anyway, back to why trauma claims can be good. It's simple. If a wider group remembers the trauma and continues to process it, we'll do more to 1. help those who experienced it, and 2. do more to prevent it from happening again. A prime example is the Holocaust. The moment we forget the Holocaust is the moment we are in danger of reliving it. I know I just covered a lot of ground. There's trauma, acute and chronic, individual trauma, and collective trauma. And then there's the social aspects of all of the above. So how do we as a society deal with trauma? I'm going to give you one last definition, and that's for resilience. It's actually tough to define because it means different things depending on the discipline, so... Okay, I lied. I'm going to give you two definitions of resilience, one from psychology and the other from geographer Susan Cutter. Don't worry, they're connected, so it'll make sense in a second. From a psychological perspective, resiliency consists of traits that allow someone to experience trauma without it resulting in PTSD. There are many factors that play into this, but the most important for this discussion is pro-social behavior and a strong connection to others. The second definition comes from Susan Cutter, who describes resilience as a, quote, human-centered perspective of enhancing capacity in various systems, for example, social, governance, and economic, a dynamic process that includes feedback, adaptive learning, and change, end quote. I know that's a lot to take in. The idea is to strengthen these systems, whether they are infrastructure or an economy, so we don't just bounce back from a disaster or disturbance, but bounce forward. This is also called adaptive resilience. All of this leads to a roadmap to dealing with trauma by building resiliency both individually and collectively. Research has shown that this can be done by strengthening social capital, those resources embedded within a social structure. And this is done through strengthening community relations. Sociologist Robert Putnam famously argued in his book Bowling Alone for increasing civic engagement, which has seen a decline over the decades. Anarchist groups have long supported mutual aid and solidarity networks as a means of struggling together as opposed to struggling against each other. The general takeaway is that in a crisis, we have networks in place that can assist, that we are not alone in our trauma. This actually reduces the effect of trauma. When we look critically at the last two years, we have to admit that we're failing on this front. Sure, hashtag not everyone, but collectively, there's a lot of burnout, isolation, and hopelessness going around. If there's one thing I hope you take away from this episode, it's that if we don't create some kind of meaning from our trauma, we run the risk of making things worse down the line. We can't shrug off the pandemic just like we can't shrug off war, domestic violence, terrorist attacks, 
genocide, wildfires, environmental disasters, or any other type of trauma you can imagine. When we do that, we're bound to relive our trauma again and again. If this feels like half an episode, it, it kind of is. I'd like to talk more about resiliency, but like I always say, that's another episode. And you can't start talking about resiliency until you understand the adversity we're facing. If you're interested in reading more about trauma, this episode relied on texts from the Jane Addams Collective, Jeffrey C. Alexander, and psychologist Judith Herman. I'll include links in the show notes. I'd like to thank SociologyBot because even AI-generated speech deserves appreciation. This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. You can find me on Twitter at, at Matt Sedlar or the podcast at, at Sociology Ruins. Join me next month as Sociology Ruins something completely different.